0: Coming up on Tech Nation, anthropologist Evan Kirksey asks us to look at the societal and ethical implications of CRISPR, and not just hypothetically. He traveled to China with an eye to understanding the circumstance of the three CRISPR babies known to exist. He's here today with the Mutant Project, inside the global race to genetically modify humans. Then, antibodies are everywhere, from new medicines for COVID and more. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft gives us a quick primer on antibodies and how we use them as therapy. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation.
1: Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. In
0: 2011, National Geographic Explorer and resident Wade Davis wrote Into the Silence, the Great War, Mallory, and the Conquest of Everest. Today, a full century later, we have satellite imaging and GPS, satellite phones, and the experience of 100 years of climbing. But in the 1920s, what did climbers know about climbing Mount Everest?
2: They knew very, very little more. I mean, you know, Everest sort of emerged in the last years of the Raj as sort of the third pole. You know, the British, an empire of explorers, had lost the race for the North and South Pole, and here in their very midst was this third pole that rose into the heavens. And so the quest for Everest began really as a sort of a gesture of redemption for an empire of explorers that had lost those races. But because of the intervening war, where so much of Britain was destroyed by the mud of Flanders, it emerges as a kind of a gesture of regeneration for a nation bled white by war. So that was always my interest in, in the story of George Mallory.
0: In a sense, the, the empire, the great global empire of Britain, has really been gnawed by the Great War.
2: Well, you know, that was a seminal event of our times. Um, you know, Churchill famously described the Second World War as just the extinct, the um, second half of the First World War. He called it the Thirty Years' War. And he famously said, never there was, was there a war. Or less necessary to fight um, than the first, or more necessary to win than the second. I became interested in the story of George Mallory really in a serendipitous way. I was traveling 4,000 miles across Tibet as part of an ecological survey in the spring of 96 when the disaster happened on Everest that uh, John Krakauer so powerfully wrote about in his book, Into Thin Air, and uh, with me was Daniel Taylor, who was uh, son and grandson of medical missionaries, and his father had been a great friend of Howard Somerville, who climbed with George Mallory in 1922 and 24. And the very next fall, Dan'l and I were back on the east face of Everest in the Kanchung face in the Gama Valley trying to photograph clouded leopards. And Dan'l, in his inim- inimitable way, began to speak of these Englishmen in tweeds reading Shakespeare to each other in the snow at 20,000 feet. And that was the Everest of his imaginings, not the kind of ignoble commercial world of today. And... As he spoke to me, I became enchanted by these men. Who were they? And I was never interested in whether George Mallory made it to the top or not on that fateful day. You know, the story goes on June eighth, 1924, he's spotted by Noel Dell with his young companion, Sandy Irvin, uh, going strong for the top on the northeast ridge with a mist coming in that envelops their memory and myth and they have never seen or heard from again. The question is, did Mallory make it before he died? And what interested me is what spirit carried him on. In 1921, the reconnaissance of Everest was just that. They had to find the mountain. They had to march 400 miles off the map. To to find it. To find it, to get to the base (laughs) of a place that had been seen from Kampazong, but never approached by any European. And on that approach march, um, a a high-altitude physiologist by the name of Arthur Kellis, 56 years old, too old for Everest, famously died of exhaustion. And he was buried at a Tibetan fort called Kampazong. Now, according to historians of Everest, in 1921, only one man kept a journal, but I found alive four doors from the house I was born in Vancouver, the son of a man who did, Oliver Wheeler, unknown, unsung hero of 1921, the man from the Survey of India, seconded to the expedition, the man, not Mallory, it was Wheeler who found the doorway to the mountain, the route up the East Rhongbook to the North Cole. He was the one who fa- famously found the chink in the armor of Everest. And Wheeler kept a journal. And when I visited his, his son, he pulled these two volumes off his shelf, and I, I was breathless. Never before seen by Everest historian.
0: You've been listening to a 2011 Tech Nation interview with National Geographic explorer-in-residence Wade Davis about his book Into the Silence, The Great War, Mallory, and the Conquest of Everest. Today, a University of British Columbia anthropology professor, Wade Davis has recently published Magdalena, River of Dreams, a story of Columbia. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes.
1: 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.
0: From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on TechNation, an anthropologist talks about the societal implications of CRISPR. I'll be speaking with Evan Kirksey, a member of the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey, and an associate professor at Deakin University in Melbourne. His book is The Mutant Project Inside the Global Race to Genetically Modify Humans. Then, TechNation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft gives us a quick primer on antibodies and how we use antibodies as therapy. And now, Eben Kirksey. So Eben, welcome to Technician.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, you don't have to research your background too far to see that, quite simply, you focus on science and justice. And some people may react, science and justice? What have they got to do with each other?
3: Well, it's it's really about, you know, who gets to make science and, and whose dreams come into contact with reality. It's it's about the future, really, and uh, who gets to shape it. So, for example, with Science and Justice, you know, this book is, is about CRISPR, this tool for uh, changing DNA. And the experiment at the heart of the book took place on a campus that didn't have potable water. So, you know, it, as people are approaching these cutting edge experiments, you know, it, it's really a question of, of what kind of uh, science gets funded, what kind of technology gets funded. Do we support the infrastructure for the people, or do we support these breakthroughs that uh, might change the game, but also introduce new kinds of inequalities?
0: Now, people are familiar with potable water if they're hiking, or non-potable water if they're hiking in the backcountry, or they're, uh, they're traveling in sort of a off-the-beaten-track kind of place, and it's like, well, I can't drink that. You have to have even better water than you can drink to do science.
3: Yeah, I, I found it remarkable. So, so the, the students at the university where Dr. He Jiankui did his experiment, they either have to boil their water or get it out of these vending machines. So it's, it's this, this really dystopian futuristic landscape where you've got these cutting edge technologies. The vending machines themselves are, are very futuristic. You have to have this WeChat smartphone app to unlock the water from the vending machines. So it's either you know, 20th century technology boiling it, or this technology that we don't have here in the States. Well, let's just start with the CRISPR aspect. And of course, you know, it's been in the news for
0: some time, most recently with the awarding of the Nobel Prize to its inventors. Whether it's the genes of a grain of rice or a single bacterium or or a human being, uh, remind us in everyday English what the tool CRISPR can do.
3: So very simply, CRISPR can change DNA. It can create targeted damage. So, so the way that most people talk about it is as an editing tool. So with a word processor, you can write a sentence. If you don't like it, back up a few spaces, add some new letters. But CRISPR isn't that clean and simple. Uh, from my perspective, it works more like a Reaper drone. So with a drone, you give it GPS coordinates. It can take out a target but sometimes it takes out the wedding party. That's, that's more or less how CRISPR works. It produces targeted damage in your genome. And in, in a technical sense, what it does is make mutants. So uh, the, the technical term for what CRISPR does in the DNA is targeted mutagenesis. That just means that it makes mutations. And mutations, as we all know, are not things that you can easily control. So sometimes it does the thing you want it to do. Sometimes it has all kinds of unintended side effects.
0: Well, I think the idea of editing a document with Word is a really great example because you say, okay, great, I just made their, T-H-E-I-R, into their, T-H-E-R-E. But if you just sort of had, instead of doing that so precisely, you actually kind of set out looking for theirs to replace with theirs. I'm probably going to get a better example the next time I do an interview, but that's the one we're working with today. And it's like, no, I I don't want you to do it anywhere else, or I didn't know it was going to do it over there. So we have to understand it's an imprecise tool, even though it's a gene editing tool. Now in November 2018, exactly two years ago, You spoke at a science conference, the International Summit on Human Genome Editing, and you spoke on the topic of ethics. And it was at this very same conference that the Chinese scientist, Dr. Hei Zhengwei, announced his CRISPR experiment. The result, twin baby girls, CRISPR edited. What was it like being there? And did anybody see it coming?
3: Well, everybody did see it coming. You know, we've been talking for years about the ways that you could use CRISPR to change the DNA of of humans. You know, we're no different than rats or guinea pigs or, or plants that this has been tested out. In some ways, CRISPR is a story that tells us we have a lot in common with other forms of life. But you know, the the way that it played out was really surprising. I, I was checking into a hotel where all the conference delegates were staying and there was this guy there on the couch talking to Jennifer Dowdna and this guy Dr. Huh was at the center of the controversy we all had you know our powerpoints you, you go to a conference usually a couple weeks ahead of time everyone asks you for your slides so we all had to you know quickly rethink what we were going to talk about and i found these videos on youtube where along with many other people around the world I learned how he basically brought together CRISPR with the tools of IVF in vitro fertilization. In some ways, it wasn't that surprising that he brought these two things together. IVF is a a technology that's been around for 40 years. Uh, Louise Brown, the very first test tube baby she was called, uh, was doing a book tour that year celebrating her 40th birthday. And you know, all that was done was a, a little bit of uh, code for CRISPR was injected into uh, the baby's cells when they were at the single-cell stage. So the videos were, were actually misleading. Dr. Ha claimed that these two babies were as healthy as any others. But uh, what I learned in the course of researching this book is this was seriously misleading. So for the first time, we now know that these two babies who were modified at birth uh, with CRISPR were having serious health problems. They were in the neonatal intensive care unit as the story broke.
0: Well, there are all kinds of things that are kept and not kept published, not published. And part of the fascination that I have with with your book, besides this great story of all kinds of things, is that you at some point decided you got to go to see what you can find about Dr. Hayes laboratory in mainland China. When did that come over you?
3: Yeah, so I'd been to China before, and um, I, I went to the summit thinking that I'd written a book and was ready to publish it, and then I was there in, in the midst of this controversy. Um, So I decided to go back and and really dig deeper into the story of what had happened with this this revolutionary new use of the technology. Um, So I ended up uh, being able to interview some of the parents who signed up for the experiment. I went to Dr. Hu's village and learned about the surprising story of someone who grew up in extreme rural poverty, who went on to get a PhD in the US, and then um, someone who became a key player in the innovation economy. And it's really a story not only about this one particular person, but the whole uh, China dream. So the China dream is this aspiration. Uh, it, it's an official policy of President Xi Jinping. And basically, they want to disrupt Western modernity with an Asian future. So, so this dream, in part, is related to the, to the American dream, sort of the rags to riches, you know, people pulling themselves up, up by their bootstraps. And in many ways, Dr. Ha embodies that story. But it's also a story of these disruptive, cutting-edge technologies, not only gene editing, but robotics and drones. The city where Dr. Ha did this experiment, Shenzhen, is a place that aspires to uh, reach for the future itself. And this is where your smartphone is manufactured. This is where, if you have a drone, it was probably produced in Shenzhen. So so the story of disruptive innovation and biotechnology really fits within this broader story of China trying to become a new leader in soft power.
0: I actually like this. Look around, everybody. Shenzhen is very close to you, wherever you are. <laughs> it's like, hmm, all roads lead to Shenzhen.
3: Yeah, we, we wouldn't be having this conversation today, probably, if it weren't for devices manufactured in Shenzhen. So, so this, this city that not many people in, in America are thinking about is, is really defining you know, our lives right now.
0: We should probably say that in addition to the twin baby girls, there was also a subsequent baby born. Do we know about that baby?
3: We don't know as much about the third baby. So so the twins were born early at 31 weeks. Uh, We know that they had trouble breathing when they were initially born. They they were held for weeks, months in an intensive care unit, and one of them was still in the intensive care unit when the news leaked about their birth uh, at the summit. So, so in part, the book is telling the very messy behind-the-scenes story that led to that third birth. Um, and it really shows an experiment that kind of ran off the rails. At, at a certain point, the parents were wanting to have a child. This was what was promised them at the outset of the experiment. And different members of the lab are trying to slow things down. Meanwhile, Dr. Hub is being an entrepreneur. He's traveling to California to Beijing, he's trying to start up a new company with 100 doctors where he's gonna teach people how to use CRISPR in the fertility clinic. So amidst all this chaos, there was chaos in the lab, there was chaos as um, people were trying to make sense of the the birth and and this new genetic data, that's when this this couple emerges and very forcefully demands uh, that their embryo be released to them. And because of the way that the experiment was done, not entirely within the law, the couple was simply able to go to this other hospital um, that was a collaborator and demand the embryo. So they had an implantation against you know, some very forceful messages coming from the lab saying we need to wait.
0: But at any rate, it seems that they had a, had a very healthy baby girl so far.
3: So far, and it's it's a tough situation. So so right now, um, all these parents are living with complicated secrets. And um, for starters, all the couples who signed up for these experiments, the the men are HIV positive. So in China, HIV is not a big problem in, in the same way that it's not a big problem in the states. If you take your medicine you're going to have a life expectancy very similar to normal. In China, in contrast to the US, there's free HIV meds for anybody um, who, who, who wants them. But the big difference is that there's serious stigma attached to HIV. Um, so if, if your employer finds out that you're positive, um, you could lose your job. You know, People with HIV have a very difficult time getting married or having a, a, a stable relationship. So so in part, the identity of the parents, they're trying to protect um, uh, their identity because they don't want people to find out about their HIV status. At the same time, the scientific community really wants to study these three babies and you know, I, I was able to get some of the very first reports back, not only about the, the twins at birth, um, but this third child. So the twins were born by C-section, again had a lot of problems at birth. The second birth, you know, suggests that maybe other things are going on too. You know, the, the second birth was reportedly healthy. So it's it's very early days. And um, it it was a very complicated social scene that went on around this experiment. And and I think we have a lot to learn. And, you know, really the future of CRISPR depends on on what happens to these three children.
0: You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Laura Gunn, and my guest today is Eben Kirksey, an anthropologist and member of the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. He's also an associate professor at Deakin University in Melbourne. You may have read his work in Wired, The Atlantic, or The Guardian, referenced for his insights in such publications as the New York Times and the BBC. He's here today with the Mutant Project, Inside the Global Race to Genetically Modify Humans. Now, we should say that Dr. Hay was subsequently sentenced to three years in prison for illegal medical practice. What was illegal about it? <sighs>
3: So there was a number of things where he bent and broke the law. So um, for starters... And this would be the Chinese law. This is China's law. And um, so for starters, uh, there's, there's clear guidelines saying that if there is a genetically modified human embryo, you cannot implant it into a woman for for a pregnancy. So that's one clear law that he broke. But that law is associated with uh, licenses for clinics. It doesn't actually carry criminal penalties. So he was charged with a statute in China It relates to medical malpractice. And Dr. He is a biophysicist. He's not a doctor. He'd never conducted a clinical trial before. Um, He had medical doctors on his team. He had an embryologist. He had an endocrinologist. The people who had experience doing IVF, standard fertility treatments, were, were part of the mix but none of them you know the team initially didn't have anyone else who was experienced doing cl- clinical trials so uh, uh, another law that they uh, violated is is an unjust law in my opinion um so if you are hiv positive in china you cannot avail yourself of fertility treatments. So you can't go do IVF if you're an HIV positive man. So, so the participants, when they signed up, they knew that it was at the edge of the law. But I, I really think you know, Dr. Ha thought that the Chinese Communist Party would be excited about this. He thought that this fit the script of the China dream. And, and I think it was really the outrage, not just from the international community, but within China. You know, when, when this experiment uh, was, was first made public, you know there was a few stories from the state media that tried to celebrate it but very quickly on social media platforms things like wechat and weibo which are kind of like the the facebook and messenger of of china you saw everybody saying things like, you know, why are you subjecting these, these children to scientific experiments? You know, what what about their health and well-being? Why is this being done? So, so you, fo- you saw a full range of comments. Some, some people in China celebrated it as, as a pioneering scientific breakthrough. And if you make a comparison to what happened 40 years ago with Louise Brown and the very first test tube baby, it, it was similar, you know. People called Louise Brown a Frankenbaby, and um, it was a media circus. Everyone from the Pope to other scientists denounced the the people involved in that experiment, Steptoe and Edwards, for uh, monkeying with uh, with humans. But um, now we have a Nobel Prize associated with with IVF, and it's become a standard everyday practice. So, you know, as as the dust clears, uh, as Dr. Hu completes his prison sentence. Um, you know, in in the long uh, play of history, you know, how is he going to be remembered? I, I was basically trying to tell a story that was both trying to take him seriously as a person, to not treat him as some monster, as many uh, journalists called him, the the Frankenstein of China. But, you know, take seriously the ethical missteps that he made along the way. And I I think for me, the missteps were going too fast and doing it in the name of profit. And this is what the Chinese court said when they handed down the sentence. Um, He he was uh, in a court statement accused of pursuing fame and fortune. But in the book, I argue that's nothing unique to him. That's how all of these cutting-edge technologies are being rolled out. A a lot of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs are also pursuing fame and fortune with CRISPR and and other disruptive tools.
0: Very interesting to learn that this was not just a scientist and an experiment, as it was often described in the press, but in fact was uh, an entrepreneur. With that also, we have... He goes to prison. You don't go to prison for unethical. (laughs) You go to prison for what's illegal. So let's talk about that. Where is this illegal in the world? Are there laws? Frequently, there are not laws if we don't have a technology yet.
3: So in the U.S., the legal framework is not very well developed. So in in the U.S., you already see a lot of genetic technologies that are in use in the clinic that have been outlawed in other parts of the world. So when when I did research for this book, I also went to England and learned about this database where if you're a parent and you have prenatal testing, meaning you get pregnant and you want to know about the genetics of your baby, um, there 's four hundred different conditions that that you can get tested, and you know th- there 's a full range of things that lots of people know about you know um, we 've all heard of down syndrome, um, but but a lot of other syndromes are in there um, that aren 't necessarily a medical problem so some boys uh, grow up looking androgynous and um, might be hairless and and lanky and This is from a condition called kleinfelter syndrome so so right now. In the U.S., there's very few laws telling you what you can and can't test for in, in your child. The U.S. is also one of the only places where you can have an abortion if you don't like the gender of your child. Many other countries have deemed that unethical. Uh, so right now, if, if you wanted to use uh, federal funds for this kind of research in the U.S., you could not. If you wanted to implant a genetically modified baby for purposes of pregnancy, you could not, but uh it's it's actually not a very well developed legal framework there's there's not criminal penalties if, if you break these rules so so the the prohibition against funding for this kind of research is in the appropriations bill, something that changes every every go round and i've had some conversations with with staffers involved in this bill and you know, there's there's a big push from the biotechnology companies and from the medical industry to open up the floodgates and, and let this technology into the clinic, but but I think you know uh, we need to have a, a lot more discussions about where this, this technology is heading before it gets rolled out, and fundamental issues related to the safety and well-being of people who participate in these experiments. You know that needs to be up front, and uh, we need to have a lot more conversations like this.
0: I have to say that uh, we have to be really careful about, I don't mean you and I, but I mean in general all of us, have to be careful about the verbiage because we're trying to reduce it to words. For instance, you just said in the United States, if you didn't like the gender of your child, you could have an abortion. The law is very, the space it creates enables that decision. It doesn't say, and if you don't like the gender, it's okay, you can have a, The space is you don't really have to give a particular reason up until a certain point. Um, in fact, you're prohibited from being asked what your reason is. So we have to be really careful about what do these things mean, and when we talk about it ethically versus we talk about it legally. And so that's usually a conversation in general conversation, it's frequently merged.
3: Yeah, and and I think the real um, dramatic tension between the Republican orthodoxy and the Democratic orthodoxy about issues surrounding abortion have shut down more nuanced conversations about what this technology can do. And in the book, what I'm also really interested in is the ways that technologies present us with new decisions that we might not anticipate, that we might not have the ethical language for talking through, and there's been some great work by some of my colleagues in anthropology going back to the eighties. Uh, my friend Rainer Rapp has a great book called Testing the Fetus that looks at amniocentesis when it first entered the clinic. And she describes women as moral pioneers who were suddenly confronted with new choices. Women who for the first time had to decide, you know, knowing that they were going to have a baby with Down syndrome, should they have it? So, so my book is, is really trying to create a space for people to embrace new kinds of diversity, to make different kinds of decisions, and even to refuse some kinds of knowledges. You know, what what do you want to know about your child?
0: I've been speaking with Deakin University professor Edmund Kirksey about the mutant project inside the global race to genetically modify humans. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks antibodies and how we can engineer them to use as therapy. Stay with us. listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with anthropologist Evan Kirksey, the author of The Mutant Project, inside the global race to genetically modify humans.
3: So my book is is really trying to create a space for people to embrace new kinds of diversity, to make different kinds of decisions, and even to refuse some kinds of knowledges. You know, what what do you want to know about your child? You know, how much can genetics really tell you about the future of your child? There's, there's companies out there that'll sell you a soccer test that will tell you, you know, does your child have the gene for soccer or the sprinting gene or, you know, musical aptitude. And, and basically, I found that these are all bunk. You know, we don't... We don't um, there's been a Wait a long... minute,
0: if it was sucker, I would test for you being a sucker. If you sent me money, the answer is yes, positive, 100%.
3: <laughs> yeah, you know, companies are making a lot of money off of these tests. And, it, you know, I, I came of age, I was an undergraduate during the science wars where, you know, biologists and anthropologists were shouting at each other about nature versus nurture, and and in this book i you know we we know a lot about genetics and we know about the interaction of genes right now the sort of genomics um and you know the the earlier predictions about like the gay gene or you know some of these other things just fall apart when you really look at the evidence but but you also learn that you know certain things are relatively easy to, to manipulate so blue eyes or not blue eyes is is just a single letter of dna so, you know, with a technology like this, if parents are permitted to make choices in the clinic, you know, this could have profound consequences for, for eugenics. Eugenics is this long old idea about having good genes. That's what that term literally means. And this is what led to sterilization campaigns in the U.S., in California, and Oregon. This is what led to the Nazi death camps. So I think we need to be very careful as we think about, you know, optimizing people, what is, what is the best baby? You know, these are, these are conversations that scientists are, are, are starting to have and have been having for a long time. But I think those of us with training in the social sciences and humanities also have a lot to say about this, you know, being, being an interesting, you know, capable, quirky, um, fun human, you know, it's, it's not something you can easily reduce to molecular signatures. So, what is what is being human? You know, this is one of the other questions that this book explores.
0: Uh, well, you mentioned a little bit about the biotech industry. Uh, I always like to follow the money trail. I mean, who is lobbying for this, and where, and about what in the world?
3: So the, the book has a brief encounter uh, with a lobbyist in, in Washington DC. So you, you mentioned uh, the, the Hong Kong summit that I went to. So there was an earlier summit in, in Washington and you know not all summits achieve sort of lofty goals and this, this one you know there were reporters there, but no one really noticed. So uh, about five years before uh, the controversy erupted in Hong Kong, we, we had a similar event in, in Washington where a lot of biologists and ethicists, And anthropologists came together to to really think and speculate about where this technology is heading. And you know the the atmosphere in the room was was very democratic It, it was uh, aimed at being very inclusive. The people who organized this event tried to reach out to you know the transgender community, for example, to disabled activists, um, although they weren 't able to ultimately include any disabled speakers from the stage so so While I was sort of participating in this democratic exercise about the future of CRISPR, the future of gene editing. I saw one of the speakers get up to the podium and he announced that he was a lobbyist working on this. And after he asked his question, I followed him out into the hall. And at first he just put up his hand. <laughs> That's and Evan's
0: way. Yeah, this is, this is, this is my method. All I... of these people, you see somebody <laughs> and he follows them. Yeah, this is <laughs> This is, is, what is not I do. the this... first time for Evan. <laughs> this,
3: is, this is what anthropologists do, right? We're, we're trained to kind of follow the story and follow the controversy. So I find this guy out in the hall um, working on his laptop. And um, I find that in real time, he's shaping legislation. So, you know, as this democratic discussion is happening next door, there's this one person who's, who's being funded by industry to actually shape the law. So, it's a lot of um, really smart and articulate, uh, principled people who are working in this space. Um, but, you know, as, as a group, uh, we, we don't have a lot of legislative clout. So one of the reasons I, I wrote this book is in hopes that more people are going to raise their voices and express their opinions about um, how CRISPR gets used in the future. There's a lot of pressing political issues. <laughs> if, if, if no one's uh, uh, paying attention to the news, you know, there's there's a lot of other things clamoring for space right now. But it's, it's also so critical that, you know, we don't let all these other conversations drown out um, important consequential decisions that are being made right now behind closed doors. More, More of us need to participate in in this conversation.
0: And this is the time to have it. I've often referred to the innovation cascade where you start out with an innovation, either a a real new one or a new use or unexpected use of one that exists. But once you have a new use, it's it's a new innovation. Then you have people who are kind of making decisions to use it and then society gets involved. You know, should we do this? Shouldn't we do that? And then suddenly there are laws. But if you're If you're saying, "Gee, I want this to be a uh, uh a profitable enterprise, you cut right to the laws. <laughs> you know, forget about what society has discussed. Forget about a lot of people using it. Cut right to the laws so in in a real sense, this is the time we all need to be thinking about this, and it's a complex issue.
3: Yeah and and I think one way that we can really reframe some of these conversations is is about you know pricing. So so there's a lot of conversations right now about healthcare a lot of conversations about, you know, very expensive medicines that are starting to enter the clinic, whether it's for viral treatments, for hepatitis C, you know, that that was one of the first blockbuster drugs that was costing upwards of... Eight, you're cured. Yeah. You're cured. Eight, eight, yeah. $80,000. How much is that like, worth to yeah, you? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, if, if you're living with a lifelong infection, who's not going to try to rustle up 80 grand? But they're pushing the envelope with, with these genetic therapies. So the first one that was approved uh, by the FDA has a price tag of upwards of 400 grand. You know, 80, 80 grand's one thing. You know, many of us could try to, you know, scramble and do a GoFundMe campaign or, you know, the, like cobbling together all that money is challenging when research uh, uh, is producing these innovations and insurance companies aren't wanting to pay for the treatments. But you know we're getting into the price of, of a decent-sized house, and you know the, the next one uh, that that comes through the pipeline is 2.1 million dollars. Like most people can't buy a 2.1 million dollar house. So how how are we going to understand the future of these these medicines? You know I, I think. Um, a lot of the research that goes into this is publicly funded. And there's, there's been a change in US policy. It, it used to be that most medical innovation was supported by the government, and the private sector had a, a relatively small role to play. That's shifted, and, and now countries like China are investing a lot more than the US government. Um, so, you know, if if we look at the, the basis of a lot of these discoveries, even though there has been a scaling back. Taxpayer dollars are still in the mix. So I think that gives us a very clear political and moral claim to, to how these drugs are priced. You know, if if my dollars went to support the basic research to develop this $400,000 cure, like, I need to have some kind of say in how it's being priced. It just just isn't fair.
0: And some benefit. Thank you. And some benefit.
3: Brit. Right. I I need to be able to access this. If I'm already paying for it with my taxes, like I, I deserve this treatment.
0: If I was a venture capitalist, I'd have it. <laughs> I'm paying for it. Right. I should have some. Right. Now, there's no doubt you gave for your research. Uh, and perhaps my favorite, uh, I'm sorry to say, <laughs> is you were visiting the Harmonicare Hospital in China to learn of their full range of medical services. Never mentioning Dr. Hay, that's where his... Uh, his uh, uh, laboratory was see what you could learn, and he asked for a full checkup of your physical and reproductive health. Not seeing what was coming, poor Dick. I have to say, the room with the fake window and the incredible selection of videos. I was like, why am I laughing out loud at this book? <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> There's all this. Oh my goodness! You know, most of us wouldn't have the nerve to try this. You know, but these are the kinds of things you get. Some very Interesting inside information just experientially, if you will, by following these paths
3: yeah for for starters that place kind of looked like the jetsons you know it it, it had those like angular chairs and these oblong windows and I, I go to the facility not knowing, you know, if this was really part of the story or if it was just some red herring. So, you know, basically after Dr. Hu does this experiment, everybody who had helped out is trying to distance themselves and wash their hands and claim that they didn't have anything to do with it. So this facility, who be? nothing, I yeah, know right, nothing. right. <laughs> you know, this facility with the Associated Press cameras rolling. The director was saying this experiment is ethical. We gave approval for it. And you know, days later they issue a press release like, oh. No, like that, uh, not didn't happen here. So, so I'm just trying to figure out. For starters, is this a place where this experiment could have happened? Did they have an IVF clinic? And you know, along the way, I, I get a diagnosis of uh, my own reproductive health. It turns out, um, you know, I, I will need some help. if, if I'm, I'm in, in my 40s now, and um, my sperm counts aren't what they used to be. Um, but you know, as as I get this diagnosis, she says, "Well, you know, there's other hospitals here in mainland China uh, that could help you, but um, you might really consider reproductive tourism to Thailand." You know, as as an American, she recognizes health costs are high here, and that there's very adequate facilities um, in other parts of Asia. But you know, it, it was this this journey where um, I got a whole tour and. This this facility is is mind-boggling. You know, it's it's kind of like a hotel boutique hospital clinic kind of place. Uh it, it's uh I also learned about conflicts that often emerge between uh expatriates like Americans who are living in China and their Chinese wives. So there it's pretty much expected that you hang out in the hospital for 30 days and and you, you Sounds know, you're great to a, me. Yeah. <laughs> they, <laughs> After you have, have these, a baby.
0: Th- Perfect. <laughs> right.
3: Yeah. The, they had these uh, swimming classes for newborns. They had massage and yoga for, for the moms. Um, but what was really striking was the plastic surgery clinic. And, um, you know, this is a place where they're routinely doing skin lightening treatments, Asian eyelid removal, you know, all kinds of treatments aimed at creating a particular image of beauty. And um, there's been some great scholarship um uh, by by others looking at the geopolitics of beauty, you know how, why is it that that there's this whole cosmetic surgery industry in East Asia right now, and you know it, it goes back to um, the Korean War when uh, American medical doctors offered as what they saw a, an act of beneficence, you know this this surgery to remove uh, their helpers of of the Asian sleepy eye. But, you know, what we see is is a story of, about colonialism, you know, who, who gets to produce images of, of the beautiful. Um, so this hospital that, that gave ethics approval for this experiment bills itself as creating or bills itself as doing American medicine and only for you. And part of it is an image of whiteness, and um, you know, imagining CRISPR entering the clinic in this place is is a recipe for those eugenic futures where you know, like, there's an image of the Aryan race that is being promoted here. And and I must say, you know, it's it's a little more complicated than just you know, let's all look like Brad Pitt or you know, this this kind of image of beauty um, within East Asia. Um, you know, having blonde hair or blue eyes would signal that you 're a foreigner and that you don 't have full rights of of citizenship but but nonetheless um, there 's a very similar kind of white privilege as as the sort of white privilege that people enjoy here so I've, I found it really troubling you know th- this this sort of experiment that I had and going to this this hospital. You know, poking around, seeing what was there, ultimately yielded something that I found deeply troubling. I, I found that the ethical sensibilities and the values that were shaping the experiment were all about profit and had this strange um, echo of of a colonial past as as they imagined a future for this technology.
0: Now, in the in the run up to this interview, um, uh, I discovered you know you're living in this sort of small abode. Uh, and I said, "Oh, this looks just great." And he said, "Well, I built this cabin—I guess small house—when COVID hit. It's like what? Everybody just went home. Tell us, tell us about the what you've this building you've built and uh, how you were able to do it in the middle of COVID."
3: So, so I finished the book uh, March thirteenth. So I was I was in Princeton, New Jersey, in my office. Um, you know, enjoying all of the beautiful things that come with brick and mortar institutions, uh, libraries, uh, a cafeteria where you could go have wonderful cooked meals. You know, colleagues that you run into the, in, in, into in the hallways and have conversations. Um, my parents live in Maryland. My long term job is in Australia, and I was basically stranded in the U.S. Uh, by the pandemic. I've been. Bummed off of two flights, um, my my employer is still paying my salary, thankfully. And um, what what I did in in the pandemic is is basically build myself a, a tiny house. They have a farm here in Maryland. I'm on forty acres. I'm, I'm looking out uh, on green pastures and blue skies. Um, so so it's been a great place to sort of socially isolate and um, uh, learn how to take care of chickens, goats, and uh, a, a, a whole uh, landscape full of butterflies, grasshoppers, and praying mantises, Some, some of my favorite things that are around me.
0: How big is your tiny house?
3: Uh, <laughs> let's see. It's it's big enough for a kitchen, uh, some bookshelves, uh, a little workstation. And then I built a, a separate uh, uh, place with a bathtub and a shower next door. So it's, it's, it's been a, a fun little experiment. You know, I used to live in Brooklyn and, um, this is about the size of a Brooklyn apartment, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a whole lot
0: different. <laughs> Same size, two yeah. different places. Well, this has been terrific. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm no MD, just a PhD, and of course, you know that even though your your uh, your your sperm may have you know been reduced over time. Still be careful, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It only takes one. It only takes one of those right. guys. So I'm, I, uh, you could be sitting there pontificating about ethics, but, you know, they got minds of their own. So uh, be, please be careful. And I do And do please, we didn't get to a whole lot of things in the book. You used to see all the questions I have that we didn't get to. Um, but I hope you'll come back and see us again.
3: Yeah, I, I definitely hope to. Um, So thank you for having me on the show. It's been a real delight and pleasure to talk through these ideas and uh, look forward to future conversations.
0: My guest today is Eben Kirksey. The book is The Mutant Project, Inside the Global Race to Genetically Modify Humans. It's published by St. Martin's Press. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Antibodies. We hear about them all the time. Sometimes it's about giving blood plasma from COVID survivors to those now suffering from new infections, conveying the antibodies of one to the other. There are enterprising biotech companies engineering whole cocktails of COVID antibodies now being tested for safety and effectiveness. And it's all hands on deck with vaccines, where every group from new biotech startups to global pharmaceutical companies are working to create vaccines trying to evoke a COVID antibody response from our very own immune systems. Still others are working on diagnostics. Are there COVID antibodies in our systems? Might we have already had COVID? And what is the nature and level of the antibodies that are there? I asked Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft to give us an English-language simple word primer on antibodies and how we use antibodies as therapy. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Moira. Now, I have to tell you, a friend of mine had, uh, they had a really great family, and one of the aunts, it was always the joke for years, she was antibody. <laughs> and we all thought it was so funny. And it's like, she's not antibody anymore. <laughs> she said, no, my name is June. <laughs> there you go. I'm Aunt June. Oh, this is not a joke anymore. And it's true everybody. We keep hearing, we're talking about, we're worried about, we're trying to figure out what to do with antibodies. Now, can you give us a primer on antibodies just for anybody? And of course, you know, you have to go the straight and narrow here because there are the scientists and lab coats over here going, yeah, better be right, Daniel, better be (laughs) right, Dr. Kraft. So, Okay, give us a little primer on antibodies.
4: I'll try. I started life as an immunologist in high school. Well, (laughs) We all know our immune systems play a key role in preventing disease and responding to it. Um, One part of our immune system is called the cellular immune system. You've heard of B cells and T cells. Our B cells are the little cells in our body that uh, are sort of the factories for making these little special proteins called antibodies. And an antibody is a a protein that's specialized to target uh, what we call an epitope or an antigen. So a fancy word for recognizing uh, structure. In this case, it might be a virus or part of a bacteria or even parts of your own body. We've heard of autoimmune disease often driven by antibodies.
0: And and it doesn't know it's a virus or anything like that. It's just looking for a structure to latch onto.
4: Right. So like a lock and key, it has a very sort of sticky end at the end of, there's different forms of antibodies, but in general, uh, the one you can most imagine is like a Y shape. And at each end of the tip of the Y, it has a binding site and it can then bind to a target. And what we've learned how to do is when you've vaccinate or you have an infection of any sort, your very smart immune system learns to recognize that antigen or target and make antibodies to that. And that's why when we get a vaccine, usually it's not the actual live virus. It's a fragment of some of the proteins or the spike protein in the case of COVID. And we hope that our body's immune system and the B cells start to narrow down and find the B cells that make an antibody that targets that particular, let's say, spike protein antigen, and divide and grow those number of B cells to make many of those antibodies in your body, and that gives you that immune response, which hopefully gives you immunity over time, and if you happen to see that bug again, that infection, your body responds very quickly. That's sort of the idea about vaccination. Give a small trigger, have your body respond, and your B cells, memory B cells, stay on in your body and can rise to the occasion to respond again. Now... Antibodies can also be grown in the lab so we can start to identify what we call monoclonal antibodies. We identify the very particular B cell that can make a very specific targeted antibody and grow that up essentially.
0: So we're engineering the antibody. Yep.
4: It's this whole field of what's called monoclonal antibodies. And it's a huge part of our biotech industry now because now we can target everything from a a receptor on a cancer type cell to a particular uh, component uh, of uh, of cellular machinery, uh, and this has become a very powerful model to treating many diseases, including many autoimmune disorders like Crohn's disease or inflammatory bowel disease have been completely changed with monoclonal antibodies that target with something called the TNF receptor, which is part of the immunologic cascade of inflammation in the gut, for example.
0: And so let me ask you really quickly, and I know you're, you've got many things more to say, but the, the term monoclonal, clonals like out of clone. So you've got antibodies that you could make a lot of. Is that the idea? What's the mono part?
4: So we might, let's say, take a a mouse that's been immunized for, uh, let's say, a COVID uh, antigen. And we've given a whole bunch of the spike protein to that mouse. Its immune system revs up. And the B cells in that mouse start to make uh, antibodies against that target. We now take out some of those B cells from that little mouse. We put a single cell in a single well. And then we look at the antibodies developing Out of that b cell and measure them and we find the ones that seem to be positive to that targeted spike protein we can take that cell out and then expand it eventually put it into a culture or grow it inside of an animal and essentially have a little factory making monoclonal antibodies a single antibody against a single target and there are a variety of ways of of doing that but that's opened up a whole new set of therapeutics and now even in the setting of covid Uh, Many folks have heard in the news about certain very famous patients getting a therapy from a company called Regeneron, which is a company that specialized in making monoclonal antibodies against certain targets. And early in the COVID pandemic, they started developing a cocktail of antibodies against COVID. And now in early clinical trials published in late September of 2020, uh, have shown that by giving this sort of cocktail of monoclonal antibodies, so a couple versions, to patients' Who are infected with COVID? It would reduce their viral load and reduce their length of infection, and this is a promising early approach. We're kind of uh, instead of waiting for a vaccine, we're sort of giving what a vaccine jump would into do, the end game. Uh, jump into <laughs> the end game. It's still quite expensive. Again, it's not fully proven out yet, but uh, Regeneron and other companies are developing these sorts of approaches for COVID and and many other diseases.
0: And it's not, as far as we know, actually. Getting your body to generate more antibodies—it is just the antibodies themselves. So your immune system, in all likelihood, uh, isn't getting any smarter. But of course, that has to be studied by science as well.
4: Correct. And we're learning—you know—some folks are quite uh, not necessarily resistant, but have very benign courses of coronavirus, and they maybe are mounting a good and early immune response. Other folks may be immunosuppressed, or their genetics means they don't respond well uh, immunologically, and so this is where we can identify those folks early and give them this sort of shot of, of antibody uh, that will hopefully tamp down and accelerate uh, their recovery from, from COVID. Um, but it does not replace a vaccine, and it's only going to be in their bloodstream for a certain period of time so that immunity isn't necessarily uh, lifelong.
0: And let's also understand, the more people that can get COVID and COVID can jump from person to person and COVID can keep you know multiplying, the stronger COVID is and the more opportunities for mutating or whatever. And the thing is, is that until everyone's vaccinated or immune some other way, it is in the wild. It is as big as we let it be, given how many people have it.
4: Right. This is a quite controversial term called herd immunity. We all know that most of us have had our measles and mumps vaccine. That means uh, 80% of us running around have good titers, meaning good antibody levels in our, in our blood. And same thing for tetanus and other uh, vaccines. Uh, but something like measles now won't spread easily around a population because 80% of us are, are You can jump off the vaccinated. plane with
0: measles and you're not going to give it to anybody. Because most
4: folks have been vaccinated. But if only 20% have been vaccinated, uh, then you don't really have that herd immunity. And some folks have been proposing, like in Sweden, uh, and some even suggesting the United States, that we let herd immunity happen with COVID and wait for 80% of folks to get it, which would mean a million or 2 million Americans would die from it. But at that point, we'd have 80% with antibodies. Probably not the smartest public health measure or approach for this particular disease.
0: No, I've always thought about these antibodies that you have. It, it, they tell so much about what you've been exposed to and uh, and I kind of wonder if we would ever get to the point where sort of our what we now call our annual physical, which is going away, we'll have a continuous personal physical, but if part of that is just to check what antibodies are there. Is that reasonable?
4: Well, today we can measure basically our our immunoglobulin level. That's a measure of immune IgG or IgE circulating through your your blood would be an indication that you have a certain level of antibodies, but not what they target. So there are now ways to sort of measure what I like to call your immunome. What do your B cells make antibodies against? Do you have titers? You can measure, does someone have antibodies against COVID after they've recovered from COVID or after they've had a vaccine? Um, Not only do our B cells make antibodies, but another important part of our immune system are our T cells. How do our T cells and what T cell receptors do we have? Uh, in terms of what we can respond to to, to infection, diseases, or or cancers, because our immune system is always sort of filtering through our body, through our lymph nodes and lymphatics, and sampling, and hopefully responding to signs of infection or cancer. It can go haywire, and we can have autoimmune disease. But I think part of yes, our future exam will be looking at our immunome. How protected are we? How healthy is our immune system? And if it's not healthy, how do we how do we tune it up? And maybe what kind of specialized vaccines might an individual need that may get very personalized for them into the future? Not just to, to prevent, again, uh, infectious diseases, but maybe to prevent development of neurological disorders, cardiovascular disease, et cetera. So it's a really exciting time to be engineering our immune system.
0: Well, thanks for coming in, Daniel. We'll see you next time.
4: Thanks, Myra. Stay safe and uh, get your flu
0: shot. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is a physician, scientist, and innovator. More information is available at danielcraftmd.net. In response to the query COVID 19 and antibodies, the FDA website clinicaltrials.gov lists 650 clinical trials worldwide. Many are active or new and not yet recruiting, while others have been prematurely terminated or actually completed. All are looking at the science of antibodies, from Egypt and Switzerland to India and Mexico, from Saudi Arabia to Shanghai. All of these studies represent the global effort to fight COVID-19. Check it out, clinicaltrials.gov. For Technation, I'm Moira Gunn.
1: TechNation Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Landcorn.